While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. me like that <laughs> i don't know it sounded like the only way that i could actually ask you <laughs> what you'd eaten lately dunkin donuts has these heart donuts that i got we got some for valentine's day just because like i thought you you're the worst what <laughs> i hate corporate love force day but I'm i do go we, eat these I mean, heart we, donuts we would have got donuts anyway we just got them because of because we wanted donuts to celebrate your there. everlasting love yeah all right and i don't know if they still have them because valentine's day was like a week ago if if they do still have them probably they aren't that good anymore no let's go get a bunch of them and see how it goes but they there's one that's like strawberry frosting and then cookie dough filling that the, ew yeah the but- cookie dough filling just tastes like cream or whatever but it's a really weird combination like it's it's way too sweet it's way too much and the flavors like do not complement each other at all so it's not actually cookie dough inside a donut no because i don't know how you fry a thing uh, yeah but how could you fry a donut and then or bake it or whatever and then put unbaked dough inside that seems difficult yeah I'm not. I mean, I don't know enough about the the uh, nuances of donut production to really say one way or the other. I suppose you could just take a donut and then put a wad of cookie dough in the middle. <laughs> yeah, like I think the outside would cook faster than the inside, right? No, I just mean like taking an. Oh, you mean taking donut. a cooked donut and shoving cookie dough up in it in, in the hole where the hole is. <laughs> Doesn't would I don't think you can just bake a donut and have it have a hole like magically. Don't, There's nothing in the middle of it Have you ever seen a donut? There's holes in most of them. Oh, you mean like, you don't mean like a donut that's been filled with stuff. You mean a donut, like a traditional donut. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I do. That's no, okay. That, that makes that makes a little more sense. I don't just mean violate like a Boston cream donut <laughs> and just jam some, some cookie, dough up, cookie dough up it. No. Yeah. Ew. That would be gross. Dunkin' Donuts, as a rule, is gross. Suzanne and I were talking about this, and and um, apparently, like the idea of Dunkin' Donuts is almost universally better than actually eating Dunkin' I'm Donuts. Fine with Dunkin' Donuts by and large. Like I'm, I will eat them if they were there, but no, I th- I think they're okay. Just like if you're talking about the calories involved, like I think you'd be you'd be better off expending those elsewhere. No, but if you're going to eat a bagel, you might as well eat a donut. <laughs> if you're talking calories. I guess. I mean, I mean, depends on the donut. Don't get the one with all of the sugar on it, I guess. It depends but. on the bagel, too. Like, if well, if I wanted just a little bagel with some cream cheese or something. I think the carbs in the bagel balance out to, like, a donut. 
Well, this is what I was told once by is someone this, who wanted donuts. Is, <laughs> see, I think they may have been biased in favor of donuts. Yeah, we haven't empirically, we haven't tested this with a I just think a donut, a, a donut is less substantial than a bagel, too. Like, it's it's lighter. It it fills you up less, but it has the same amount of calories. And stuff. Well, that's why Dunkin' Donuts will gladly sell you two, my friend, with a cup two of bagels? coffee. No. Donuts? Yeah. They will sell you bagels, though. They will sell you bagels. I like their bagels okay. What's a bagel but like a dressed up donut? Like a respectable donut that's kind of moved out of its parents' house and it's providing for itself. It's basically a donut that's putting on airs. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, right, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew and I don't understand why you put that weird emphasis on... On you. Well, because I got tired of saying it like a normal person. I figured (laughs) I'd try it a little differently this time. Really, it's more about the books that we've been meaning to read. but uh, That sounds less interesting. Yeah, right. So, Craig, what what book had you been meaning to read this week? I'd been meaning to read, and then I read uh, Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut. You got me a a pretty sweet uh, Vonnegut collection a few months ago. and we've been, we've talked on the show a couple times about uh, really the only Vonnegut I've ever read was a couple of short stories in high school, mm-hmm. uh, which I enjoyed, but I hadn't read anything full length of his. And his kind of his mark on 20th century American literature uh, is pretty pretty well founded, pretty uh, well recognized. Yeah, I think he's he's had a lot of imitators. And we read we read Breakfast of Champions for the show. Well, I read it. Um, and I've read Cat's Cradle. I've read Slaughterhouse Five. I read Man Without a Country, which I think is his last published is work, that, at least during his lifetime. And that's kind yeah. of a collection of essays, mostly. Uh, so yeah, um, but yeah. I mean, I, I'm not. It's not I, my Vonnegut experience is not comprehensive, but I did. He does have a voice that I really like, and I thought that you would you would enjoy it too. Well, let's face it, nothing on this show is comprehensive, Andrew. <laughs> that's. Probably true. I'd try not to call too much attention to it. Yeah, well. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that always comes up when you're talking about Vonnegut uh, is World War II, right? Because he served in World War II. Mm -hmm. He got a Purple Heart. Uh, He was at Dresden when they firebombed it, um, which is a crucial part of Slaughterhouse-Five, right? Yes. Um, So he was known... Uh, was a known pacifist and um, kind of referred to himself, I think, as a, as a modern humanist. Um, he seemed to have some sticking, some issues with religion as well, or organized religion anyway. Yeah. Um, and Cat's Cradle is a little earlier than Slaughterhouse Five or Breakfast of Champions, which I think Breakfast of Champions is even a little crazier in structure than Slaughterhouse Five, right? If I recall. Yeah, correctly. that's yeah, that's it's after Slaughterhouse Five. I think it's. I think he he said he made it as like a fiftieth birthday present to himself. Oh, I remember or that. something yeah. like that. Yeah, like it was it was getting a little later in his writing career. So one of the things to know about Vonnegut for this book specifically is that after World War Two. He uh, went, I think he went to University of Chicago first um, and was studying to be a, uh, studying anthropology, um, which this book would later, he would get a master's from the University of Chicago in anthropology, 
1971 mm-hmm. with this book as his thesis, which, I don't <laughs> know, which is we will get to why that might be, even though I think it's kind of weird. And then uh, he was working for General Electric in the 40s and 50s uh, in New York as like a technical writer or something. Uh, and his brother worked there also. And one of the things that kind of inspired this book is that he noted how a lot of the older scientists and and engineers at GE didn't really seem to care how any of the things they invented or discovered were used. They just okay. they just seemed to enjoy research for pure research sake. Uh, and that's kind of how this book all begins. He used um he actually used the uh, Nobel winning chemist Irving Langmuir as his basis for one of the one of the main characters in the book mm-hmm. um, who worked with Vonnegut's brother. I mean, I can definitely see why Vonnegut, like after World War II especially, would be interested in the intent behind inventions and like what those how those inventions could be weaponized. Well, and, and whether or not you have any responsibility for it after you've created it. You right. Know, yeah, which, yeah. Which we'll get to. Um but before we get into the book proper, I want to talk about uh, there's an interesting thing I found on uh, Vonnegut's um, like self he he graded all of his own writing, if that makes sense. Yeah. So he had he had laid out a bunch of rules for a good short story, um, some of which are like, you know, give the give the reader a character they can root for. Every character should want something. Sentences should either reveal character or advance the action. Um, he has one which is, I think, interesting, which is be a sadist. No matter how sweet, <laughs> no matter how sweet and innocent your leading characters, make awful things happen to them. Um, <laughs> he also says, write to please just one person. If you open a window and make love to the world, your story will get pneumonia. <laughs> uh, and then he says, give this, give the readers as much information as possible as soon as possible, uh, to hell with surprise. They should have a complete understanding of what is going on, that they could finish the story themselves, um, which I think is an interesting way to tackle storytelling. He's mm-hmm. kind of taking the the end for granted and then is much more interested in, in why that end happens than kind of surprising you with it. Does that make sense? Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, he was quick to note that Flannery O'Connor uh, did not adhere to most of those rules in his assessment, but he found her very successful. <laughs> uh, he gave Cat's Cradle an A plus according to those rules. Okay. So what what were some of the other books in that list? He gave. What were, what were the, some of the ones that he didn't like? Did he not like any of his of his better known ones? Uh, a book of his, or I guess yeah, a book called Slapstick. He gave a D. Okay. He gave his collection Welcome to the Monkey House a B minus. He gave Breakfast of Champions a C. Okay. Uh, he also gave... Based on those rules, I can see, because <laughs> Breakfast of Champions was kind of all over the place. He also gave Slaughterhouse 5 an A+. So he seems to agree with the world that these are two of his better books. All right. That's good that he has some self-awareness, I guess. <laughs> I think a lot of... Like, I... I either come to hate stuff that I've written or like I kind of forget that I've written it. Like there are a few things that I've done that I'm still proud of and would like use as examples of what I can do. But yeah, like as a, 
as somebody who writes with some frequency, yeah, it can get really hard to like objectively evaluate the work that you do. Like either you're being too hard on yourself or you're not being hard enough on yourself. I don't know. And there's also, uh, I found this neat, the Cat's Cradle was published in the early 60s and Vonnegut was kind of famously, he self-employed himself after a certain point because as he said, he was not a very good employee. Uh, and I think this kind of goes back to some of his writing tenants, but he uh, he ended up he had a job at Sports Illustrated for like a day. It seems <laughs> he showed up and was asked to write a piece on a racehorse that had jumped over a fence and tried to run away. And uh, according to him, he stared at the blank piece of paper all morning, then typed the horse jumped over the effing fence and walked out. <laughs> Uh, so he is not one to tell a story that he does not think is important. Um, and he seems to kind of have a little bit of disdain for people who are in the system and are not willing to bucket when sure. they know better. Sure. Um, now you read Cat's Cradle before, Andrew? When did I you did, read it? but it's it's been probably three or four years, maybe even. It's been a little while. Yeah. Uh, and um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I remember... I definitely remember the end. I remember some of the gist of like what happens, but yeah, I could I could use a refresher if you want to, to I mean, run I, down the list of events. I don't know. Yeah, it starts so it's after World War Two, uh, and the writer, uh, the it's told in the first person, a man named John, even though on on like the first page he says or call me Jonah or I'm calling myself Jonah, which is instantly aligns him with Moby Dick, of course. Um, he is writing a book on the day the world ended, which is the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. So he sets out to uh, learn more about this fictional doctor, Dr. Felix Honecker. Honecker? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, we can go with Honecker. Let's go Honecker. Um, and he's this kind of pie-in-the-sky uh, dreamer of a scientist who's kind of a dis... Like, as he learns, as John learns, is kind of was always detached from the world around him and kind of studied whatever he wanted. And uh, so he's he's involved with the bomb. And I what I really like about the book overall is that it kind of follows this, for a long period of time anyway, follows this reporterly style where it is just the narrator kind of tracking down different people related to this story and then interviewing them to learn more. Uh, it starts with a letter from one of Honecker's sons, Newt, who's a midget, and it you know talks about him and and what he was doing on the day the bomb dropped and he was showing his son uh how to play like a cat's cradle like with string mm-hmm. he was just playing with string and that becomes like a pretty big metaphor uh throughout the rest of the book so then as john's going he is you know tracking down he goes to the stand-in for general electric it seems uh which is <laughs> What is it? General Foundry and General Forge and Foundry. <laughs> okay. Uh, and where he basically encounters the type of scientist that uh, he did not like in General Electric. And, you know, they were working on the bomb and they were working on all sorts of other stuff. And he discovers that Honecker developed this technology called Ice 9, which is this. Uh, it's a it's water that is room that is solid at room temperature. It's its melting point is above like a hundred degrees Fahrenheit. 
mm-hmm. and it has a weird chemical trait that it will it's a seed of some kind so it will turn other water into ice nine okay um which basically makes it like a super weapon and john immediately is like this is terrible why did anybody create this thing <laughs> uh and it was invented to help soldiers get through mud like that was the thing that they asked for that the army asked for mm-hmm. uh so then the the quest kind of that becomes one of the questions in in the back of john's mind is where, where did this ice nine go uh, dr honecker himself has passed away so there's no talking to him and he's trying to track down the kids and uh he can't really find any of them they're they've kind of scattered to the winds uh newt ended up in indianapolis living with his sister and the other one frank they think he might be dead he's on the run so they're gonna find him and john carry uh doing another reporting piece ends up going to the fictional island of san lorenzo which mm-hmm. is in the Caribbean, and there's this small native population there uh, that has this dictator whose name is Papa, and he's kind of an eccentric dictator figure. And they all practice this, uh, well, they're not supposed to, but there's this religion on the island called Bokanonism. Right. Bokan, yeah, I don't know. Um, and that becomes a huge tenet in the book as well. We'll, we'll kind of sidle back around to that but while john's down there he's on the plane down there and he the honecker kids are going as well and they're going to uh see their brother frank who was missing and uh he's going to get married to this beautiful woman named mona and then uh it becomes clear that frank's in line to become the next president of san lorenzo and then uh tragedy starts to strike and papa gets sick and uh John, Frank ends up convincing John that he should be the president of San Lorenzo, <laughs> and things just start happening faster and faster. Uh, and then ultimately becomes clear that the kids all each have their own piece of, or they had anyway, a piece of Ice Nine, uh, and it gets unleashed, uh, and that's and things go bad from there. Yeah, that's that's basically the book. I try, I try to run through it super quick. And at the end of it, if I remember correctly, basically everything is gone, right? Oh, ev- like, oh everything. Oh, like everything. Nothing, nothing can stand up to the effect of this Ice Nine. And so, yeah, and so, so everybody's just dead at the end. Like, there, it's, it's not a thing where science can Undo correct it. what science has wrought or whatever. Yes, that is, that is the thrust of that. Um, so Ice yeah. Nine is the super weapon, and uh, the all of the children of Honecker have kind of used it for their own purposes. Um, mm-hmm. Andrea, who is this kind of, she's older than her siblings and ended up kind of taking care of her, her father after their mother passed away. Uh, he, she is kind of, she's not popular. They don't really talk about her as being anything interesting to look at. And they talk about her as kind of being a little dim as well, or at least not as smart as the rest of her family. Uh, and she's this weird clarinet playing recluse. Um, she likes to like sit in her room and listen to clarinet records and play along to them, like jazz records. And it's be- clear that she used the Ice Nine to like get a husband, basically. Like it's sure. worth money, so she gets a husband. Newt is this, you know, kind of downtrodden because he is a midget and people don't treat him well. Uh, he ends up in a romance with 
another midget from the Russian ballet uh, who he may or may not have used the Ice Nine to seduce her, but she definitely took it or at least took the knowledge of it back to Russia and left him behind. Mm -hmm. And then Frank, it becomes clear that he used that to get his military position, uh, like major general on the island of San Lorenzo. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's this kind of very personal dissemination of something that has global ramifications and kind of reinforces that idea of not really taking ownership or or seeing the larger picture of right yeah what you're responsible for um so yeah i i mean that's the that's the story in a nutshell, but the tone of it, which I think is in fitting with a lot of Vonnegut and I'll lean on you a little bit for this. It's not quite irreverent, but it is heightened in a satirical way uh, that is very 60s, if that makes sense. Sure, yeah. I mean, he's he's never one to shy away from making like an exaggerated comparison or something to make a point like he he definitely is known and this happens a lot in breakfast of champions and and elsewhere he is known for painting something in the broadest possible strokes to like get his point across yeah and and the part of that is san lorenzo becomes this it almost feels like not quite a different book it actually moves there quite organically but it really takes on its satirical qualities once John gets to San Lorenzo because it's this island nation of I don't even not very many people and they all live in squalor and yeah they're all kind of miserable and the one hotel on the island faces away from the rest of the city (laughs) so you can't see how bad it is (laughs) and it's a hotel with a hundred rooms and John is the only guest and the guy who runs it also is like a total jerk but it doesn't really matter because it's the only hotel. And yes, in the hotel uh, is where John gets a taste of what Bokanonism is. And meanwhile, you've been hearing hearing about it throughout the book as this religion that John converted to, but you don't quite know why, and you don't know where it comes from. And it it itself feels like this grander satire of what a religion can or should or could be. Uh, yeah, tell me, tell me more about Bokanonism. Okay, I'll, that's I'll go there. Uh, the central tenet of Bokanonism is to live by the foma that make you brave and kind and healthy and happy. And foma are defined as harmless untruths. Okay. So basically, the idea, <laughs> the idea that any sort of religion uh, is just going to be a a book of rules that are basically lies. So why not just Make sure you live by the ones that keep you the nicest to other people. Sure. Um, Which maybe is something that people in most religions do anyway. Maybe. Well, it's definitely what Vonnegut believes people do. You know, I think there's there's I don't I don't think this is true of everybody, but certainly there are people who who just worship as is convenient for them or like. Mm-hmm. They spend a lot of time looking for a very, very specific branch of Christianity that, like, conforms to the beliefs they have already instead of, like, challenging their beliefs to make them believe something else. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. Um, And you, the rules that are most comfortable for you are the ones that you adhere to the most, you know? Yeah, right. Um, So, 
the the thing about Boganonism in regards to San Lorenzo is that it was established when you know white people basically settled there. Okay. Uh, in 1891, this this man who was studying at the London School of Economics but had to leave because of World War One, he ended up on the island, and the his name is Lionel Boyd Johnson. And for whatever reason, the like fake Creole patois of the people of the island pronounced his name Bokanon. Like mm-hmm. I don't know what. <laughs> like that okay. is a re- recurring theme throughout the book is is how these people don't pronounce English correctly. Mm-hmm. And Vonnegut just I don't quite know what thematically why that's super important, but Vonnegut won't drop it. Um, <laughs> So they actually, uh, Johnson kind of teams up with Earl McCabe, who is his partner, and they are ruling the island. And they are trying to raise the standard of living on the island, and it's not really working out. And so everyone's still kind of miserable. Like, one of the things that Vonnegut points out is that uh, when they finally get, when John finally gets to uh, the dictator's house, he sees the first overweight uh san lorenzen he's ever seen like everyone else is in kind of abject poverty and and famine um so they create this religion uh that not only do they create it they outlaw it at the same time (laughs) so there's this sense that you have to have an evil to rail against or to subvert so that you can find you know so that you can actually value this good thing right Mm -hmm. Um, and it's I don't know there's this sense of like man comes in and sets up a town with his rules and then has a counterpart man that he sets apart from him that just feels very familiar Um, but so then Bokanon is still alive as of the writing of the book and he goes to live in the jungle uh, and he just keeps adding to the books of Bokanon which are these you know these calypsos these short poems uh, that kind of pepper throughout the book. How's he? How's he communicating these changes to the San Lorenzans? Like they just get them. They're just okay. not really clear. <laughs> like at one point, uh, John asks for a copy of the books, uh, and someone's like, "Well, they're not finished. Like you're not. It's it's he, it's writing up until the very end of the book. Um, when everything's going down, there's actually a, a another calypso that gets added where Bokanon said that says that he would." Uh, you know, commit suicide in the face of such a tragedy, but he's, mm-hmm. but he can't cause he's too old or something. Um, but so this book, the, the books of Bokanon are filled with all these terms that kind of get peppered throughout the book as well, which not all of them feel super satirical. Uh, one of the thing, things that feels oddly satirical or at least super weird about Bokanonism is that the way to, to like the highest form of, spiritual enlightenment and love with someone is to touch your bare feet together okay like i i don't know if there's supposed to be a pun on souls there that is really important (laughs) like john's in the hotel and he sees two guys who are still setting up the hotel room in a way that reminds me of the sochi olympics um and they're like sitting on a shelf touching their feet together and as soon as John comes in, they're like, oh, no, I didn't know. You didn't see that. Well, like, I don't know. I'm just trying like, say you say you're a single young man and you go out okay. to like to go clubbing and you want to have you're going to have like a one night stand with somebody. 
I'm intrigued. Confused, but intrigued. I feel like touching your bare feet together is something that's like intimate enough and weird enough that you would only want to do it with somebody who you really trusted. Yeah. Or who you really liked. Yeah. Where it, like it seems it seems even more I don't want to say more intimate than sex, but it's a in a weird way it like it requires more like familiarity or, or something with, with sort that of person. A, it, I don't know. It's sort of emotionally more intimate, right? Yeah. Like L- Laura has a feet thing. She won't she doesn't even want me to like see them. Like she doesn't like. Feet. Oh, I thought you were gonna go the other direction. No, she, like she like does she not. Has a, she has a she has a feet. No, thing. I would never intimate that. She just doesn't like. Them. Um, and Susanna doesn't like having her wrists touched. I know that. Yeah, I remember that. Which is yeah, it's a weird thing. I don't wear things on my wrists. Uh, I don't like that feeling. I think it was because I was in and out of the hospital a lot as a baby. I think yeah, I yeah. developed an aversion to wristbands of all kinds i wore i wore watches once when watches were still a thing and now that watches apparently are trying to be a thing again i'm gonna have to wear one again eventually they're just male jewelry smart watches oh you you're talking about smart watches stop that don't worry about smart watches but (laughs) one of the things that's that's kind of the satire end of uh bokanon as a as an outlawed religion is that even the people who run the country who say it's against the law practice it. Like when the dictator ends up dying, he, he gets his Bokanon last rites. Um, and there's this threat of something called the hook, which is not unlike Vlad the Impaler we talked about last week, <laughs> where people who break the law for anything just get put on the hook. <laughs> like, And it kind of gets explained to him as like, well... Nobody's gonna pick pockets anymore if they know they're just gonna get put on the hook. Who's like who's enforcing this Bokanon law if everybody secretly practices Bokanonism? Well, the trick that you kind of find out is that no one's really enforced like every since everyone okay. is into Bokanon, um that the the outlaw the law against it is actually just to kind of protect it as an ideal it's kind of interesting if you think about it that's so weird because if the government validates the religion right then the government will take ownership of it Mm -hmm. so it's interesting i find it interesting that vonnegut's kind of implying that you need that it's a different definition of separation of church and state you know Mm -hmm. um where the government instead of allowing all religions just says that this one is not allowed but clearly the book is kind of saying that this is the closest thing to a a functional religion <laughs> uh which is weird uh some of the words that are that are talked about as uh bokanon phrases i think are really fascinating the big one that comes up a lot is the main character talks about his karas which is a, he defines as a group of people linked in a cosmically significant manner um, even when superficial links are not evident. So he includes all of the Honickers and a couple of the other people in his Karas. And it's interesting mm-hmm. when you read it as like, here's a writer character who's writing a book and here's this religious conceit that explains all of the characters in this book being intertwined, <laughs> you know? 
Uh, yeah, I think this is one of Vonnegut's bigger books for made-up words. Like, there are just so many of the weird poking oh on words there's, that get made up. There's one called a Grand Falloon, which I think has taken on a bit of a life of its own, which is, it's a false caross. So mm-hmm. it's a group of people who imagine they have a connection that does not really exist. And I love the way that he illustrates this, is John is on a plane to San Lorenzo, and he's meeting, uh, he meets the new american ambassador to san lorenzo and he also meets a guy who's going to set up a bicycle plant like a bicycle factory okay and the bicycle factory's guy's name i can't remember what his name is hg something um his they all went uh they're from indiana and so the he and his wife use the term hoosier a lot Mm -hmm. and they discover that john is also a hoosier and she's like, "Oh, you're a Hoosier. You can you can call me mom. We're all together. You know, we're joined because we're Hoosiers. And you know, mm-hmm. it's not unlike the pathological need I have to talk about Kenyan whenever I meet someone from Kenya. Right? Yeah. Uh, and the book is kind of pointing out that like this is, at least in Bokanon, this is false. This is not valid. Like, you are a grandfather." You- you think you have something in common with somebody, but you don't actually. They share, yeah, they share a little more than a name, is what he says. Yeah. Um, he talks about the, uh, he talks about deprosses, which are a, 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 a caress of only two people. And the one of the people that exhibits that or demonstrates this is that ambassador uh, from America, the mm-hmm. Mintons, him and his wife. They're, Two members of a caress that no one will ever be part of their caress except them. They are so intrinsically linked in their fate, in their lives, and they will always die within one week of each other. (laughs) (laughs) And it says, a true depressed can't be invaded, not even by children born of such a union. Um, This is an interesting heightened version of that type of Mm -hmm. relationship. And And he... This is one of the, I mean, in in lots of his books, he takes a word and he like really, Vonnegut really hooks on it and and like describes it to you. Is this is this the book with pissant in it? Oh yeah, yeah, because that's I that's one of my more favorite quotes from him is um, a pissant is somebody who thinks he's so damn smart he can never keep his mouth shut. No matter what anybody says, he's got to argue with it. You say you like something, and by God, he'll tell you why you're wrong to like it. A pissant does his best to make you feel like a boob all the time. No matter what you say, he knows better. Which I feel like describes like 90% of the people I interact with on the internet every day. Like, Wait, can you go to that thing, no matter what you feel about something, you're wrong? Is that the quote? Um, you say you like something, and by God, he'll tell you why you're wrong to like it. <laughs> yeah, I know plenty of people like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, and that's the uh, one of the fun chapters is... Um, when they're checking into the Hilton on uh, or the the hotel on San Lorenzo, the guy running it, I think his name is Glass. I think um, he H uh, G Cabe, who's the one of the one of the Hoosiers, one of the Grand Falloons. He calls it the Pissant Hilton because the guy running it is a huge jerk to him, so he leaves. <laughs> I think you're getting a couple of the names mixed up. I'm looking at. I'm looking Who's at the Cabe? Here. Earl, Earl McCabe. Is that the person you're talking about? No, I'm talking about someone else. Um, and then H. Low Crosby is the bicycle oh, manufacturer. I, that's who I'm talking about. I'm sorry. I okay, apologize. That's fine. Yeah. Um, and Philip Castle is the guy who owns the hotel. I didn't yes, want to say yeah, Philip yeah. Glass. No, it's not Philip. It's pretty close. <laughs> it's though. pretty close. 
Uh, but yeah, and so there's this kind of overall acquiescence to Bokanonism that is kind of running throughout the entire book. Um, and it's this, you know, this idea that you could just treat people better through acknowledging all sorts of lies in your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the most moving passages in the book actually is one of the big parts of San Lorenzen uh, mythology is the day of a of a hundred martyrs, I think it's called something like that, and it's their own memorial day for like World War Two. And what they did was they put a bunch of young men in a boat, and they were going to ship them off to America to help fight the war. And then, as soon as they left San Lorenzo, they got sunk by a German sub. <laughs> and so Man. they they celebrate this this day of a of a hundred martyrs. And the reason that the American ambassador is down there is to kind of help celebrate that. And yeah. uh, he delivers this kind of moving speech about how uh, how he doesn't really like the way that they celebrate their memorials, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about mourning. Um, he had a son. He had a son die in war, and he talks about mourning him as a child, even though he has to recognize that the, that he died like a man. Um, and he says. Uh, and I propose to you that if we are to pay our sincere respects to the hundred lost children of San Lorenzo, that we might best spend the day despising what killed them, which is to say, the stupidity and viciousness of all mankind. Perhaps when we remember wars, we should take off our clothes and paint ourselves blue and go on all fours all day long and grunt like pigs. That would surely be more appropriate than noble oratory and shows of flags and well-oiled guns. It's like, woof. <laughs> Oh my god. And this is like uh, he's saying all of this in anticipation of the five jet planes of San Lorenzo that are going to fly by and like shoot some targets in celebration of the martyrs mm-hmm. and that ends up being what causes all the disaster at the end of the book. <laughs> uh, but it's this like oddly earnest anti-war track in the middle of the book like not in the middle towards the end of the book after a whole lot of implied and satirical anti-war behavior mm-hmm. um, which just kind of struck me uh, not not struck me funny not quite struck me funny um, he says think of what a paradise this world would be if men were kind and wise that's like how he ends his speech it's like that is yeah. oddly again earnest of Kurt Vonnegut I think I don't know yeah the back of the book that that you gave me calls Vonnegut an acidly funny Midwestern fabulist whose anger (laughs) and sorrow at the way things are is equaled only by his love for the best that we can be. Um, Yeah, I think that sounds about right. But man, he is mad sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of dumb stuff. There's a, there's actually something that was kind of resonating uh, as I was reading it in the middle of the book when he's on the plane to San Lorenzo, he's, there's a lot of discussion about what it means to be an American outside of America. Mm-hmm. And that one of the reasons that foreigners hate Americans is not only because they don't like them for being Americans, but Americans assume that they are loved everywhere they go. <laughs> <laughs> and like, that's the big problem with us. And I was just yeah. like reading that and the Olympics are on. And I was like, Oh God, this is bad. <laughs> Yeah, man, we're probably doing a bad job. Doing a bad job. Um, yeah, that's. I don't know if I have anything else. Other th- yeah, I mean, I think I think you hit most of it. I mean, reading any Vonnegut stuff is like, okay, what, 
what is he saying? Like, what's the plot? And then yep. what is he really saying? Like, what's the symbolism? Yeah. And then what weird turns of phrase are in there that really caught your imagination? And I think those are the three big ingredients to any Vonnegut story that's for me. True. Um, and one of the things I did like about this book, I think the other books are similar in structure, but it is written as a bunch of really short chapters. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And this is, by all things considered, pretty traditional of a book for Vonnegut like it's not jumping around in timeline or anything crazy like that Uh, but he does have a lot of chapters that even within one scene he'll break it up with chapter breaks primarily I think to give him uh, a way to land a punchline or to land a a really not or a zinger for lack of a better word sure Uh, yeah that I mean to draw attention to a particular line basically yeah uh, and I just really appreciated that throughout throughout the book um, because he'll have these these scenes with people that go on for a couple chapters at a time. But the way that you kind of remember some of the tenets of Bokanonism or or just kind of drive home the satire is by these these uh, ending lines, which I thought mm-hmm. were pretty neat. Um, and it gave it a good pace. It made it actually a lot easier to read because I was like, oh, just one more chapter. Oh, I'll just read one Oh, this chapter is only a page long. I'll just read that one. Right? Yeah, uh, it's easy to flip through him, and it's probably derived from his success as a as a short story writer too. Um, yeah, he's very he's very direct most of the time. Yeah, even even when he's being roundabout, he's doing it in a very like I don't want to say choppy, but very concise sort of sort of way. Yeah, uh, and one of the things, one just one more uh, tidbit trivia tidbit is that apparently. Vonnegut credits the invention of Ice-9 to that aforementioned chemist, um, Langmuir, who apparently in thirty in the 30s was charged with the responsibility of entertaining H.G. Wells for a day. <laughs> what? And Langmuir came up with the idea about a form of solid water uh, that is stable at room temperature um, in the hopes that Wells might be inspired to like go away and write a story about it. <laughs> that never happened, but huh. Vonnegut used it. Uh, nice. And so, yeah, it's it's this tract on on what it on scientific responsibility and uh, the personal stories that get wrapped up in issues of larger conflict, mm-hmm. um, as well as obviously religion. Like Bokanonism yeah. is kind of is super goofy and <laughs> and really fun. Uh, one of the ones that kind of sticks in your head is the. I've I've heard this quote elsewhere. Is the like man got to hunt, bird got to fly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, tiger got to hunt, bird got to fly, man got to sit and wonder why, why, why. Um, which is, I was like, I thought he was quoting a song because I I was so familiar with that quote as I was. No, that's just it. that's one of the Vonnegut Vonnegut isms that's really seeped into the popular culture. I think. Yeah. And it's interesting too because tonally the book. It could feel like science fiction, but it doesn't. It just feels like fiction. You know what I mean? Because of how, because of what it's dealing with, it could easily morph into science fiction. Yeah, like there, especially with the Ice Nine stuff, you have elements of fiction in there, but really, I mean, Ice Nine is just the bomb writ large, so it feels maybe more real than a lot of sci-fi might feel. Well, and he at the very beginning of the book the the narrator is claiming he's going to write about the bomb right mm-hmm. and then it slowly becomes something else and i guess we never really talked about why the book is called cat's cradle i guess 
why is the book called Cat's Cradle? Real quick before we're before we're done. Because <laughs> because the cat the cat's cradle is is Honecker's the the father is showing it to Newt as like look at this thing that I made it and kids always look at it and go there's no cat and there's no cradle what are you talking about mm-hmm. and Newt kind of derives this uh this idea that it is about me- the meaninglessness of everything like you show someone <laughs> you show someone something and you say it's this and then they look they look at it closely and you're like that's not even there at all what are you talking about yeah um, so all this all you know government religion all sorts of these things are just big cat's cradles feel better so yeah it's it's meaninglessness and you know delightful everyone have a great day <laughs> if you have something meaningless that you'd like to show us uh you can send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com uh, we are also up on twitter at twitter.com slash overduepod and on facebook at facebook.com slash overduepod and we've been trying um in the last couple of weeks to maybe populate those feeds a little bit more and be a little more active on them so uh if you don't follow us, go ahead and go ahead and do it, and we will we will try and be a little more forward about engaging with you on those on those services. And if you're doing that, and your other Twitter friends and Facebook friends are like, "What are you talking about? What is overdue?" You can direct them to overduepodcast.com, where they can find all sorts of information about us. Not all sorts, but plenty of information about us. Some some sorts. some <laughs> sorts of information, uh, as well as back episodes of the show. Amazon links to some of the books that we've read, all the books that we've read, actually, so that uh, you can purchase them for your own reading pleasure uh, or follow along, whatever you want to do. There's also a link to our iTunes page and to our RSS feed. You can subscribe to those or rate and review us in the store, which would be a great way to spread the word. Uh, In addition to, you know, just grabbing your friend by the shirt collar and say, listen to us, (laughs) do it. It's books that you should be reading. You've been meaning to read them. Just do it. Uh, um, next week we're doing something a little special it's gonna be our 50th show yeah and uh in in honor i don't know that honor is of the number 50 necessarily the word that we're gonna be in dishonor in dishonor of our 50th show we are both going to be reading 50 shades of gray so if you've liked previous episodes where two white guys talk about stuff that we are uncomfortable talking about yeah. You should tune into that one. Tune into that. And I'm going to we're going to probably put a disclaimer up front, but I'm going to say right right now that we do normally try to keep the show clean because you know, so more people can listen to it. Like some not uh, not everybody likes swearing as much as we normally All do. All the nonas in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh next week we probably are not gonna be able to run a clean show because I don't I don't know a ton about what Shades of Grey is about, but what I do know suggests that it's gonna get a little salty. A little hot and heavy. It's gonna get a little blue up in here. So some just, of the just... words that we use in everyday life might change their meanings into kind of sexy meanings. Maybe maybe you don't want to hear us say these words. I don't know. But maybe uh, you really so. do. <laughs> so that's gonna be that's gonna be next week. Uh until then everybody thank you for listening and try to be happy. Bye.